dad always told me, my dad was the guy that would take me around preaching, and he said, you know what the most meaningless words that you ever speak are? I said, no. He said, there are two words that you speak that are absolutely meaningless. And I said, what are they? He said, I'm closing. He's talking about my sermons. My grandmother always said sermons are like biscuits. They go better with a little shortening. So I hear we have a uh, fiesta back in the back tonight to uh, attend to. So uh, let's go celebrate my 50th. Let me try to dispense with a lot of comments, but... um, Looks like the crowd's small tonight. I don't know if they heard. This is, this is perennial. There are three bane of the existence of a preacher dates, and that's Memorial Day, Labor Day, and the week after Easter because everybody got their church in last week, right? And they're, they're, so all you guys are the holy people. So God bless the holy people here, here, here tonight. All right, I want to read John 20. This is our lectionary text, John 20, 19 through 31, and as is has become our custom of late. I would love for you guys to read it with me, but read it actually like you mean it. So let's start together. We, we'll just read every verse together. Would you read with me now? When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. I want to read a little bit more to you if you don't mind. Normally I don't like to be read to, but I think this is this little reading from Philip Gully's book. Anybody know who Philip Gully is, the Quaker minister? Incredible guy. Jeff, have we ever tried to get him at Wild Goose? He's an incredible, have we had him at Wild Goose? Yeah, he's an incredible guy, a Quaker minister, and he writes these little kind of Louis Grizzard home tale um, tales And the first of his books, for those of you who are readers, that I would recommend is called Welcome to Harmony. It's kind of a little bit of historical fiction in these books from his years in ministry as a Quaker pastor, but uh, it's really an incredible book. So let me read a little bit. I was in first grade when I learned, oh, I am 50. 
no need to extend my arm longer than I have to. I was in first grade when I learned that religious faith would not be easy to sustain. I bowed my head to pray at lunch, just as my parents had taught me. Thank you, God, for our food, for homes and health and all things good, for the wind and the rain and the sun above, and most of all, for those we love. I especially in first grade liked the food trays. At our house, all the food ran together on our plates. The green bean juice got mixed in with the applesauce, which spilled over on the corn. Just an aside here, I believe that fine china is shaped like school lunch trays. I do not like my corn juice on my potatoes. Of course, my mom always said, well, it all goes to the same place. I said, yes, but you don't have taste buds in your stomach. I like everything separate, so I identify with Gully here. I didn't care for that and wouldn't eat it when the food all got together. My mother always told me to clean my plate. The kids in Africa didn't have any food. I always offered to send them my supper. What I liked about the school food was that it knew its place. There was the meat section of the tray. It was always the biggest section of all in the lower right-hand corner. Next to it was the vegetable section, which was a circle in the lower left corner. On the left edge of the tray was where you laid the silverware along with your napkin and drinking straw. Fruit went in the upper left corner and next to it in the top center section was the dessert. In the upper right corner was where you set your cardboard container of milk. Chocolate milk if you were a boy, white milk if you were a girl. The trays were a disservice, leading us to believe the rest of life. I need to read that again. The trays were a disservice, leading us to believe that the rest of life would be orderly, though it never was. They'd have been better off stirring our food together and telling us that this was how the world was. Mixed up and out of kilter. Instead, they had us walk in lines and didn't let our food run together. They taught us harmony and sent us forth into chaos. I had forgotten all about the trays until I went to eat lunch with my son Levi the second week of school. He was a new kindergartner. I signed in at the office and walked down the hallway toward his classroom. I passed the sixth grade hallway and heard Miss Fishbeck calling out words for a spilling bee. I listened as Amanda Hodge spelled the word methodical, M-E-T-H-O-D-I-C-A-L. The talk at the coffee cup was that she might win the county spelling bee. My son's class was lined up in the hallway. Mrs. Hester marched us to the cafeteria where the ladies spooned out our food in sections. We sat at a long table. It reminded me kind of as a prison table where the convicts ate and planned their escapes. I was sandwiched between Levi, my son, and a little boy named Adam Fleming. My son had told me about Adam. Several times he had explained how Adam's name was written on the chalkboard at least once a day. He told me that Adam was often sent to the principal's office. He had been sent there at least four times, he said. He told me none of the kids liked him. He's a liar, my son Levi reported. Once at recess, he kicked Billy Grant, right, Billy Grant right in the stomach on purpose. My son said, if he messes with me, I'll karate chop him, Dad. I knew the Flemings. They lived east of town in a trailer. Adam and his two little sisters and his parents had moved to town the year before. Adam's daddy, Wayne, worked nights at the Kroger waxing the floors, and his mother labored at the McDonald's down near the interstate. 
Then early one morning, Wayne Fleming came home from work to find the kids asleep. And not only to find his kids asleep, but his wife was gone. There was a note on the table that read, don't try to find me, I've gone away. The rumor was that she had met a trucker and had gone west with him. Our thoughts toward her were not charitable. The women from our meeting, Quaker churches call their services and their churches meetings. The women from the meeting had been taking food out to the trailer. And the lady who worked at the Kroger Deli always let Wayne take the day-old bread and the chicken wings that didn't sell home. The nights were the hardest when Wayne would tuck the children into bed and they would cry for their mommy. People said they were better off, but it didn't feel that way to Adam and his sisters. Their daddy never knew what to tell them, so he never said anything. He would just hold them until they fell asleep. Then he'd tidy up the trailer, start the laundry, wash the dishes, and then the retired neighbor lady would come sleep on the couch and Wayne would leave for the Kroger. I knew all about this as I was kind of their pastor, at least a little bit. They had come to our meeting on the Christmas and Easter before. I'd gone to visit them a time or two, and I'd seen Wayne at Kroger when I'd go there late at night for ice cream. We always took to visiting in the aisles, and we struck up kind of a friendship. When his wife ran off with the trucker, Wayne actually called to tell me. I mentioned their need to the friendly women's circle, our church. They were casting about for a new project, and they decided to take on the Flemings. But I got to tell you, as magnificent as those women were, they were no replacement for a mother. Adam and his sister's bellies were full for sure, but they still cried themselves to sleep. I had told my son that Adam didn't have the blessings he had. I had told him, in spite of the fact that Adam was mean, he should treat him nice. On this particular day, as I was there with the lunch trays, the school lunch trays before me, Adam was sitting next to Levi and me in the school cafeteria. Out of the blue, he said, My daddy sleeps in the daytime. He doesn't eat lunch. I said, hey, Adam, why don't I come next week and have lunch with you? Would you like that? He said he would. Then he said, my mommy came to eat lunch with me yesterday. Have you met my mommy? She's a good mommy. She's real nice. Hoping if he said it enough times, it'd make it true. I said, I don't know your mother well, but I bet she is nice. He said, oh, she's real nice. When I get home from school, she has cookies for me, and she buys me lots of toys, anything I want. A little girl across the table shrieked, he's lying. He's a liar. His mommy's gone. She runned off. Shut your face, Adam screamed, lunging at her. I grabbed hold of him. And I pulled him back across the table. He was shaking with rage. Then this little kindergartner leaned into me and began to cry. The lunchroom monitor marched over, frowning, and told Adam if he didn't settle down, he'd have to sit off by himself at the quiet table. And I thought to myself, this is the world's response to suffering. We want it out of sight. We take suffering and we put it off over by itself at the quiet table. Raw pain alarms us. It reminds us that life isn't as orderly as we'd hoped. We demand that pain settle down before we shuffle it off to the quiet table. We want pain to stay in its own little section. We want it to keep, we want to keep it from spilling over into the other parts of life. 
just like those lunch trays. Keep pain in its own little compartment. But on this day, I held the little reprimanded boy to me, and I didn't think of his anger nor his actions. I thought of his mother. I wondered if her joy in running off was worth all of this. I thought of Wayne having to teach his children that they were still worth loving and worth having. I thought what an incredibly large task when all the evidence seems otherwise. And then I thought to myself, this is the world my old pastor Taylor had warned me about. A world where some parents cared more about their happiness than they did about their children. I thought of the cold evil committed by folks looking to be happy. The world. Evil. Suffering. And sitting there at that little lunch table, I held the boy to me, and I thought hopeful thoughts of a new world yearning. A new world. A world where God has set up housekeeping, where God will live right with us and we with him, and God will wipe the tears from our eyes, and death will die, and little boys like Adam will not cry anymore, and there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more. And I held that crying boy to me, and I thought my hopeful thoughts of a new world. Wow. I was thinking about this scripture today, and it reminded me of what Gully's talking about here, the messiness of life. There is a discipline within the realm of theology called theodicy, within the realm of philosophical theology it's called theodicy. It sounds like a fancy term, but it's pretty easy. It's just an anglicized version of a Greek word. The Greek word, rather it's two Greek words. It's a compound Greek word. Theodicy comes from theos, T-H-E-O-S, which a lot of you know is Greek for God. And then the D-I-C-Y part of theodicy comes from dikaios, which is a Greek word that was used often in the New Testament. And dikaios meant righteous or just. And so this philosophical realm of theology called theodicy deals with the idea of how God is perfectly just. In a world where 10,000 children starve to death every day, in a world where clean water or unclean water costs the life of another 20,000 children, in a world where babies are born addicted to heroin and methamphetamine, in a world where women are battered and immigrants increase every day, in a world like ours, theodicy deals with that pressing question of how God could possibly be good and our world could know such pain. Actually, within the realm of theodicy, there are three tenets that are held in tension and those who are authorities in the realm of theodicy say these three tenets are held in tension and perhaps the positing is that they are irreconcilable. And those three tenets are that God is completely good, that God is completely powerful, and that there is suffering in the world. And the question is, how could God be good, perfectly powerful, and still there be suffering like there is in this world. And, and so through the ages, those who study theodicy said that they 
need to find relief in at least one of those three sections because those three sections cannot be reconciled to one another or those three propositions can't be reconciled to one another. And so there are those who say the relief comes from the fact that God is not perfectly good. Um, there are those who have decided that God is less than good. And, and that's not a new thing because I, I think the Hebrew innovation, the Jewish innovation, if you really study the history of our forebears, our innovation some 3,000 years ago was that God is not whimsical and capricious, but God is moral. Until that time, in, in, the, in the throes of human history, for much longer than we have lived now, most people believe that the gods were not good. They may not have been immoral, but they were at least amoral. They were whimsical and capricious, and there was no pattern to their actions or thought. They were a, a pantheon, a soap opera in the sky that you really couldn't count on. They were angry, and they were always out to get us. So while a lot of folk within the Christian church and even within the Jewish faith believed that the chief Jewish innovation was monotheism, that's not true at all. There were a lot of monotheists before the Jews, and there were a lot of monotheists after the Jews. The Jewish innovation was that God was moral. The Jews did not say God wasn't angry, but they say God is justifiably angry. God is justifiably angry because we've done wrong, because we haven't keep, keep, kept covenant, because we've sinned. But if we would do right, and if we would keep Torah, and if we would maintain our covenant with God, that God wasn't capricious, and that God would be good to us. And so the Deuteronomistic covenant in the Old Testament was, if you do right, God will bless you, and if you do wrong, God will curse you. And if you're cursed, you can't call God the task on that because it's your fault because you haven't done right. So there was an innovation in the Jewish faith. And that innovation, again, wasn't monotheism. It was the justice of God. So while there are a lot of people who have decided that there is a God, but that God is some kind of a cosmic SOB in the sky and is not to be trusted, those within the Judeo-Christian tradition say, no, we believe God is love. And we not only believe God is love, we believe God is just. And we believe God is righteous. And even if God's actions are painful or seemingly uh, tough, that this is a tough love and that God is good. So those of us within Judeo-Christian traditions who see the image of God in the face of Christ, we really can't let go of the fact that God is perfectly good. So the second tenet that we often wrestle with, and Jeff, you just got a master's degree up at Minnesota where Greg Boyd used to teach, and Greg Boyd got kicked out of the school that you got a master's degree in because Greg Boyd, as an evangelical pastor who has taught for us before at Grace Point, Greg Boyd posited that the relief in that untenable triad comes from the fact that God is not all-powerful. God is perfectly just Steve, God's perfectly loving, but the reason they're suffering is because God's not in control of everything. And Boyd's position, which I think is the most logical of all the positions, is that the reason God is not all-powerful is because God has forfeited power. So God is not insipid. God is not weak. This is not a powerless God who has had power wrestled from him, her, it, this is a God who, has, who is not inherently weak, but a God who has for some reason forfeited 
micromanagement, omnicausation, and complete power. So Boyd posits that in the face of Jesus Christ, we see the face of God, and this is a God who has relented, forfeited power, turned it over to us and our free will, and because of that forfeiture of power, Michael, at times, the world suffers greatly. That's a plausible argument. If you want to know more about that argument, you should read Greg Boyd's book, God of the Possible. In his erudite theology, God of the Possible is an approachable, accessible book, and it really makes this case clear. So people like Boyd have said in the face of Jesus, we see a God who's not all-powerful, and that's why evil happens. Because God, Sharon, God's not causing everything but God is allowing things through the forfeiture of power. And then, and then there are those, and this doesn't happen much in the Christian faith, but in the Eastern world, there are those who said, well, the tension is relieved in that third leg of the triad, and that's the issue of suffering. And our Buddhist friends, even to some degree our Hindu friends, our Taoist friends, propose that there really isn't such thing as suffering. That suffering is just a perception of ours and everything that happens in life really shouldn't be you know binarily distributed into the good or the bad but things just are and there really is no suffering but all things are just neutral they are they are not good or bad they just are and it's how we respond to them that makes them good or bad and I suppose I can try to go there until, a, until I'm dealing, you know, with a four-year-old child who has little pot marks all over his arms because his mom's boyfriend has decided to punish him by, when he does wrong, using his little arms as an ashtray. And I don't know how to frame child abuse as a neutral, all-righteous saying, Max, I just don't. I just, I think there is suffering. And I don't think we can neutralize it. Um, I, I don't think 200,000 kids under the age of five being terminated or having their lives terminated in the Holocaust can be described as something that's neutral. So theodicy is ever about the business and, and, and all of that seems so lofty and high and philosophical. And, and yet the reality is, whether you know the word theodicy or not, or you know about these three untenable elements or not, the reality is we all wrestle with the question of why do bad things happen to good people? Why in a world created by a perfectly good God do human beings suffer to the degree that they suffer? And so for 33 years now, I've spent my life in the pastorate, and I don't know of one single question that has arisen more frequently than that particular question. This existential angst that is forever expressed in those three profound letters juxtaposed against one another, Y-H-Y. I cannot tell you how many times that I have been in that place with the stillborn child, the um, pediatric cancer unit, and had people look at me and say, why? Uh, just a few years ago, I remember 
the plaintive cry of a 6'5", 280-pound former defensive end for 11 years in the NFL as he laid, as he finally let go and they turned the machines off and his three-year-old passed after years of struggle from a congenital heart defect. I remember that guy backing up against the wall and just sliding slowly, that big mountain of a guy sliding slowly down the wall saying, why, why, why? And I don't know that Jeffy had ever heard the word theodicy, but the issue was present for him. Well, I don't have good answers for people. Um, I was just telling someone the other day that in one of my hours of greatest trial, I remember a good friend of mine, a lot of y'all remember this name, Russ Taff. Russ was an incredible um, pioneer in Christian music, and Russ is an incredibly wonderful human being. He grew up much like I did, and we became friends years ago. And I remember in one of my hours of greatest stress, a lot of people called me and gave me simple answers, 140 you know, um, character answers to the dilemma that I was in. I didn't answer their calls. I didn't answer a lot of calls in those days. And I remember when 804-5889 came up on my phone, I knew it was Russ. And I almost, because I knew what a loving guy he was, I almost pushed the button and answered, but I just couldn't talk to anyone. And Jeff, you were there back in those days. It was just a dark time. And I punched reject, and very quickly I saw that a message had been left for me, and I'll never forget that message. In the middle of all the philosophical answers that were given to me about where I was and what God was doing and how it was all going to turn out fine, Michael, I remember... I think about you right now, we'll be at your mom's funeral tomorrow. So there's pain in the world. But I, I remember what Russ said to me, and I'll never forget it. Russ said, Stan, I don't know exactly what to say to you. But he said, I just want to tell you that it won't always feel the way it feels right now. My Lord. I remember as simple as that was, Lee, it was right. This was not a guy who was trying to fix things for me. This was not a guy who was trying to explain how things were. He just spoke to me a truth that actually all of us have experienced, haven't we? We've all been through hard times, but at some point we have experienced that the tears begin to abate, the comfort begins to come, and somehow, some way. I mean, people like Gary and Sandy who've lost a child. I mean, you never. My grandmother lost three children, and she told me, she said, I was paralyzed for a while, and then I was, then I was in a wheelchair, and then psychologically I was on a walker, and then I was on crutches, and then I was on a cane, and then I got rid of the cane, and I limped, and everybody could see it, and then my limp became so imperceptible nobody could see it, but boy, I could feel it every time the barometric pressure rose. And she said, when you've gone through pain, she said, you ultimately can get past the paralysis, but you always walk with a limp. And so these limps in life are what I'm talking about. And I remember those words from Russ, which were so true now in retrospect, it won't always feel this way. And as I think about that discipline of life that we all engage, this, this matter of suffering and the, and, the, and the part of my life as a pastor that is... Um, unavoidable, I just wanted to tell you tonight, and then we're going to go have a fiesta, and y'all are going to celebrate my 50th birthday. I want to tell you in, in retrospect about these 50 years of life I've lived. This text 
is central to my wrestling with the, with the issue of theodicy. This little text that I just read a moment ago really, for me, summates my inarticulable, indescribable, unexplainable faith that is beyond words, but I intuit deeply, that keeps me a spiritual person, uh, a believer in God, a believer in goodness, and even a Christian. And I wanted to just read through and point out a couple of things in this text that really for me has been the greatest solace in a world where big men slide down walls saying why. When it was evening on that first day, Jesus had risen from the grave that morning. Peter and John had gone to the tomb. They saw the empty tomb. Angels spoke to them. Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb. She didn't find Jesus, and yet she did, but she didn't recognize him. She thought he was a gardener and said, where have you laid the body of my Lord? And the gardener, Jesus, looked at her and said, oh, Mary. And Jennifer, that voice, you know, the sheep know the voice, broke her, and she said, Rabboni. That afternoon, he had walked on the road to Emmaus with a couple of men who didn't realize who he was, who had been disciples of his, who were lamenting his death. And then it was evening on Sunday. And when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, the resurrection only hours before, Listen to this and see if you can't relate, because this is what good wisdom literature does. It doesn't just capture a historical moment 2,000 years ago. It captures an archetype. It captures and sets a template for all of life. When it was evening on that first day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Think about that. Have you ever been in that place Maybe not physically, but spiritually. You've been in that place where you literally are in a room. You lock the doors, close the shade, and you are hiding for fear of life. You shut down. It's too much. It was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus had just been crucified by these leaders, and these guys believed that they were next. And as they were locked in that dark, dismal place, fearing for their life, confused, the stuff with Jesus had not turned out the way they thought it would. Their faith was disrupted and deconstructed. But as they were there, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, listen to this. And I cannot tell you how many times this has happened for me. Jesus came and stood among them. Please know that in these texts, Jesus indicates and represents the living presence of God. And I'll just ask you the question, has anybody ever locked themselves in a room for fear of what's happening outside? And as impervious and impenetrable as you tried to make that room, locked in that place of fear, has Jesus, has the presence of God ever walked into that place and simply stood there with you? I heard someone Wednesday night in our Midrash Bible study 
talking about an hour of great pain for them and the only way they could describe the presence of God was that in that hour of great pain, God literally came and held them. I remember my friend Sharon McKellar, her husband was a good friend of mine, Carl McKellar, the two boys, Philip and Carl Jr. were especially good friends of mine. I used to preach revivals for them. They pastored a little church, in, or a good-sized church in the Pentecostal world in North Little Rock. And in her early 50s, Sharon uh, came down with cancer. It was terminal cancer, but she fought valiantly. And I remember one day calling to check in on her and just see how she was doing. And she wasn't doing very well at all, but she told me, she said, I have been with the Lord. Never forget this. I said, what do you mean? She said, yesterday I went over to UMS, the medical center there in Little Rock. She said, I went over to UMS for a last round of chemo. And she said, it was to be my last round of chemo. I was never going to do it again. And she said, this round of chemo was simply to extend my life maybe a month or two so I could be with my kids and my grandkids. She was, I think, 52 or 53. She said, Stan, I was out in the hallway, and she said, I was as low as I had ever been. And as I was standing there, the doctor came to me with the gurney. The nurse practitioner came and asked me to get on. They were going to take me back for this incredibly acidic, toxic chemo that just battered my body. And she said, I was standing there thinking, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, knowing that if I don't do it, I'm a week or two away from dying and thinking to myself, be a good mom, give your kids another month or two. And she said, so I got on the gurney and they rolled me back to where the, this chemo was and she said, as I was standing there, she said, they stood me up and they began to strap all this stuff onto my arms. She said, as the stuff began to course through my veins, they set me down in the chair and she said, I began to feel it. I began to feel its debilitating effects, the nausea, the acute nausea, the incredible suffering. She said it was like a flu times 100. And she said, I thought to myself, I can't do it. I just can't do it. And she said, I bent my knees. And she said, I just went to collapse. And she said, when I did, she said, somebody, I supposed it was an orderly, came up behind me, Mandy, and said, wrap his or her arms just underneath my chest and picked me up, and she said, with my knees limp, I just rested back on him. And she said, I stood there for about five or ten minutes, became violently sick, and she said, I remember as I was throwing up into that bag, thinking to myself, who is this special person who is holding me while I puke my guts up into this bag? And she said, as I was standing there, Finally, I, I was through puking. They began to detach. She said, this shoulder I was leaning on, she said, I remember tilting my head back up to the right and looking, and there was no one there. And yet she said, there was someone there. And she said, immediately, as I looked into the oblivion and yet knew there was a presence more powerful and real than the physical she said, I remember those words from Deuteronomy. When the children of Israel were facing a dilemma greater than they had ever faced, and they were scared out of their minds. They were locked in a room for fear of all that which was outside. And she said, I remembered those four promises as the Lord spoke to them. Steve, she said, I remembered as I looked up into that space, the Lord said, the eternal God is your refuge. 
Underneath are the everlasting arms of God. She said, when I thought about underneath or the everlasting arms of God, she said, I saw a picture in my mind of that eagle mama that takes her eaglets up into the sky and weans them by toppling her wings and the little furry, feathered creatures fall through the air hundreds and thousands of feet and just before they hit the rocks, whoosh, underneath, the mother swoops and catches them just at the right time until they learn to fly. Underneath are the everlasting arms of God. The eternal God is thy refuge. The third promise she said I remembered was, as thy days are, so shall thy strength be. I remember growing up thinking that God was some kind of a tester, kind of an insidious you know, guy in the sky who likes seeing how strong we are by sending all these temptations to us. And yet, as she spoke those words, I remember thinking to myself how reversed that actually is. The eternal God will be your refuge, and as thy days are, so shall thy strength be. Not as thy strength is, so shall thy days be. God doesn't look at your strength and then give you a bunch of tests to see if you can handle it. But as thy days are, so shall thy strength be. Have you ever seen somebody going through something and you thought to yourself, my God, I couldn't do that. I don't have that kind of strength. It's true, you don't. You know why you don't have that kind of strength? Because you don't have that kind of day. But grace says if you ever have that kind of day, you'll have that kind of strength. Because as thy days are, not as thy strength is, so shall your day be. But as, Josh, as your days are, so shall thy strength be. It's not just grace, and it's not just great grace. It's sufficient grace. It's grace that comes in the hour of need. And Josh and Shana, you could never have projected what you were going to go through. And you, you would have thought to yourself, we would die a thousand deaths if we got there. But when you got there, you made it. You know why? Because as thy days are, so shall thy strength be. Always just enough manna for the day. Never more, never enough for tomorrow, never so much that you need to collect it. And even if you do try to collect it for tomorrow, it ruins itself. Because tomorrow's strength will be met by tomorrow's grace. I remember that friend of mine whose husband had left her, cheated on her mercilessly. They had been in ministry for years. And I called her late one night and I said, Kim, how are you doing? And she said, Stan, I'm just trying to get to midnight. I said, what do you mean? She said, I'm just trying to get to midnight. And I said, explain that to me. She said, you remember the prophet said his mercies are new every morning. And she said, if I can just get to midnight, the mercies renew. Because as thy days are, so shall thy strength be. And then she said, the fourth promise, Sharon McKellar told me, she said, the fourth promise was, and I will give you iron and brass shoes to wear. Iron and brass shoes. Why do we have iron and brass shoes? Well, because there is this motif within our faith that says that God can move mountains. But Jennifer, you know, the transition that you've been through, you know. <laughs> Sometimes the mountains don't move. Sometimes they stay right where they are. And the God who moves mountains sometimes says, well, that mountain's not moving. But I'll tell you what I'll do, Jennifer. I will strap iron and brass shoes on your feet that the shards may not cut you. That you may be able to go through it. Carol, Lord, after 45 years of ministry, I'm sure you all saw people healed. I'm sure you were probably healed a time or two. Unexplainable things that happen, and then you get leukemia, and it doesn't move. The mountain stays there. And we watch you go almost to death's door two or three times. It just felt like you were going to leave us. And you just, 
get through because God says, I will give you iron and brass shoes to wear. One other time I had heard that verse mentioned, and that was when my Aunt Joan, 40 years old, had finally given birth to the baby that she had longed for her whole life. And I remember when that baby was stillborn, Dr. Shedd, who had birthed all of us and our family, Dr. Shedd said that he worked as hard as he could on that baby. It had evidently, she had gotten a cold in the last week of the, of the pregnancy, and the baby was born still, and I remember Dr. Shedd saying how he worked so hard to arrest that baby, and then he just laid over that baby because he was a part of our family and cried. And I remember Aunt Joan testifying in church later, saying that she didn't think she could make it, and she reached over and got that Gideon's Bible. God bless the Gideons. And she opened the Bible to Deuteronomy 34, and she said the first thing she saw was, I will give you iron and brass shoes to wear. And she heard a voice say to her, put on your iron and brass shoes, Joan. We're going to go through this together. Sometimes the mountain moves. Sometimes the feet are prepared. Sometimes the storm is stilled. Sometimes he gets in the boat with us. So the reality of theodicy is not some philosophical reconciliation. The reality of theodicy is so beautifully put here for those of us who believe that God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. For when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, the first experience of resurrection for these men was not theological, it was not doctrinal, it was experiential in the middle of their pain. Mandy, Jesus came and stood in the midst of their pain and said, peace. In the midst of the pain, Will, he didn't say, I'm going to resolve everything. These scars didn't happen. He stretched out his hands, pulled back the robe, Lee, admitted to the pain of the world and said, peace. Peace be with you. After he had said this in that dark room of fear, after he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them while they rejoiced, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. With wounds a healing, the wounded one, the wounded God stands in the midst of their fears and says, peace. He doesn't say absolution. He doesn't say, he doesn't in any way indicate that they will not go through pain. Tommy, he looks at them and says, in the middle of their fear, peace. And he doesn't show them, he doesn't float, he doesn't glow, he doesn't perform a miracle. He shows them his wounds. And then he says something incredible. He says, as I have been sent into this world, I'm sending you. He's not relieving them of pain. He's telling them, Carol, pain's coming. It happens to everybody. You do good, you might suffer for it. This is not absolution, this is the presence of peace. This is why Paul said, God will not allow you to be tested or tempted in a way that you're incapable of. You know why? 
God will not suffer you to be tempted above what you're able. You know why? Because no matter what temptation, the grace of God will be sufficient for you. God will make sure that you have enough strength to get through. And sometime the manna will just be enough and there won't be any left over tomorrow, but it will be sufficient grace. It will get you to the end of the day and, and, and at 11.59 you'll feel like you don't have enough, but then midnight will come and mercies will renew. And as thy days are, so shall thy strength be. And it's peace in the midst of the pain. And it's the promise. As the Father has sent me, and he looks at them and he says, I know what you're thinking. Because a few days ago, I was in Gethsemane saying, please let this cup pass from me. Please let me be the first person who gets through life unscathed without pain and sorrow and bleeding and tears. Let me be the one. And then he realizes that it's ridiculous. And the God-man says, nevertheless, and he suffers greatly, and he's deeply wounded. But on the other side of the wounds, there is a resurrection that superintends the wounds, brings meaning to them. And he says, as I've sent, been sent into this world, so send I you. But I'm giving you peace as the Father's given me. And I want to tell you, nothing changes and Burundi is not fed, and Namibia is not happy, and Afghanistan is not relieved of their status as the hungriest country in the world, and pediatric burn units still happen. But the Christian message is not a philosophical reconciliation of these three untenable things. The Christian message moves the question of theodicy from why do humans suffer to why does God suffer? Because in Jesus, the suffering God comes, stands in the midst of our suffering, and says, me too. And Nicholas Walterstorff, the great philosophical theologian from Yale, in his incredible diary called Lament for a Son that he wrote in the middle of the night after his 25-year-old, his fifth child, a 25-year-old son, died in a mountain climbing accident in Central Europe. Walter Storff poured his erudite philosophical theology through the framework of his own incarnate experience, and it's the most powerful theological book you'll ever read. You should read it, Lament for a Son. And in that, Walter Storff says, I finally realized that the ultimate question was not why do humans suffer? The ultimate question was why does God suffer? And while I could not give an answer to why God chooses to suffer, this is what Christians have in the person of Jesus Christ. We have a suffering God. And Jesus does not answer why God chooses to suffer. But at least we are not on the front line of a war with a five-star general thousands of miles away in an air-conditioned office sending us our moves unscathed and untraumatized by the bullets that we face, we have a God who is with us in our suffering. And Hebrews 12 said, so looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, looking unto the God-man, the one who has come past the walls into our fear and has not shown us a resurrection per se, but has shown us his own wounds that are not gangrenous, they're not infected, but they are healing. He has shown us these healing wounds that are both healing and healing. And we are healed by them. By his wounds we are healed. By the wounds of God we are healed. 
Because in that moment, we realize that we can look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This is the beauty of the Christian message. This is the beauty of incarnation. This is the beauty of God become man. Because we are not a bunch of humans standing out here at the base of a tall wall that is impossible to see over with a God on the other side whimsically telling us, hey, just endure it all. It's going to be okay. And at the base of this wall, on this side with all of the suffering, we scream back and say, how do we know? And from the other side, an unscathed, unwounded God says, trust me. And for thousands of years, that's what people had to do. They had to trust an invisible, unknowable God. And God realized how untenable that was, and God realized how unbelievable that was. So God came from the other side of that wall onto this side of the wall and suffered mercilessly. And Paul said, so we can look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him on the other side of that wall, the joy that we don't fully know, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. So let us consider him. Let us consider the wounded one, lest we become weary and discouraged in our souls. So, what I could promise, I remember in the Pentecostal days when my big six foot five buddy, 11 year NFL veteran, was standing against that wall. I promised him if he prayed hard enough and if he lived righteously enough that God would answer his prayers. And boy, that'll ruin a life and a ministry because it's not true. But what I could promise him as he slid down that wall in his pain was what he experienced and he later wrote me a letter of and that is that underneath are the everlasting arms of God. The eternal God will be your refuge. And as thy days are, not twice shall be your strength, but as your days are, so shall thy strength be. And he will give you iron and brass shoes to wear so that the shards of the mountain will not cut you. And you may not think you're going to make it, but you will get to the other side. And it will not always feel this way. And we can look unto Jesus who comes to us behind our walls in the midst of our pain. And the power of resurrection is not the power of absolution. It's not exonerating you from the vicissitudes and reality of life. It's not telling you that your chances to avoid cancer or whatever it is, are better than others. It is simply saying, when you are there, and it is your day, and the doors of your house are locked, and you are fearing life at its worst, Jesus will come to you, he will stand with you, and he will say to you, peace. And it will be a peace that passes understanding. And it will rule in your heart, So on that day of resurrection, only one thing actually changed. And it was not their pain. The only thing that changed was the world finally knew that a wounded God was in our midst. And in Jesus, we realized that that's where God had always been, Lee, in the wounds of humanity. And if you're looking to me at 50, after 34 years of ministry, 
have the answer for what's on the other side of that wall that makes even God endure. I don't know. I remember when I thought it was going to be an eternal Hollywood, big mansion, streets of gold, all of that was very literal to me. And then I moved to Williamson County where the streets are almost paved with gold. And we were still unhappy. I remember when I thought mansions were going to do it for us. And after living my whole life in a 900 square foot Jim Walter home, moved for every track home's 3,000, 4,000 square feet. And I realized Barber mansions weren't going to do it. But there is a day, there is a place, maybe it's not even out there, maybe it's even in here. There is a kingdom of God that will transcend all pain and suffering. And eventually tears will be wiped away. And even the tears of God will be wiped away. And I don't know how it's all going to work out. But as Julian of Norwich said, I do believe, Herb, that all manner of things shall be well. And one day, Michael, heaven will not be marked by what's there. Heaven will be marked by what's not there. There shall be no more. There shall be no more. There shall be no more. And until that day on the other side of the wall comes and God brings God's peace fully to us and feels that peace with us, we are to bring that kingdom to bear on this world. And you know how we do that? We do that by entering into one another's suffering, walking through those walls, and Sandy being with one another in our fear and our pain, and saying to one another, it's not always going to feel this way, and until then, I'm here. So, see you tomorrow at your mama's funeral, because I wouldn't miss it for nothing, because that's what we do. We are with one another. And Steve, I love Jesus because he is Emmanuel, God with us, not God fixing us. Can you say amen? amen. We are a blessed people, aren't we? We are a blessed people. Let's still our hearts and just pray for a minute before we go have margaritas for Pastor Stan. I think about the world now. I think about how raw pain alarms us. I think about how disorderly life is and how my green bean juice runs over onto my potatoes. I think about what we do with one another's pains and how we punish one another and set one another off at tables alone. And I'm grateful in the midst of all the running and the fear that a resurrected Christ 2,000 years later keeps walking through our walls, holding us in his arms, allowing us our space for tears, and reminding us that somehow, some way, it won't always feel this way. We are grateful today, sweet Christ, for the hope of our faith. May we be this Christ in one another's lives. May we be good to one another, for surely to God there is enough pain in this world. We pray these things in Christ's name. 
And God's people said, 